part five. I need help. The boy hadn't said a word, hadn't cried, fought, screamed, nothing for days. It seemed wrong. I kept staring at his little face, hoping for some sign he was still in there. Maybe they wiped his mind. Could he be a vegetable? I was staring at his face now, as a matter of fact. I had stolen us some food. I was pretty sure he wasn't hungry, but... He reached out a finger, interrupting my thoughts, and beaked me on the nose. That's a good sign, right? Undercity stretched out before me. Sector 12 hadn't been one of my usual patrol areas. It was a warren made out of old subway corridors, half-collapsed skyscrapers, basements, ships, all remnants from before the ocean levels had ridden half a risen half a century ago. I'd been spoiled in my old sector. What I'd thought was poverty was just the beginning. Next to corporate headquarters, there was still an illusion of privacy, of business. But here, there was nothing but ruined metal, the smell of decay, and constant, ever-present noise. It grated on me. I had lived in the hive-like barracks of the corporation my entire life. It wasn't the presence of others that made me so jumpy. It was the constant state of near desperation that put me on edge. Insanity, misery, desperation, hope, all crowded together in noisy abandon with each emotion screaming for attention right now. Shadow, the boy, I'd started calling him this partly out of self-defense, because what else could I call him, seemed just as disturbed by the experience as I was. Two people had tried to buy him our first day here. The illegal child sex trade, particularly for BL models, seemed fierce. I kept his face covered as much as possible. I kept my face covered as much as I could. But that wasn't that unusual here. Most people tried to keep the stink out of their noses and the dirt out of their lungs. But the graceful BL form seemed recognizable even through his mask and baggy clothes. Nobody seemed to have heard of a TK model, which was good for which I was grateful, after a couple close calls. We slept on the street, and I kept Shadow tucked in close to me, cuddled in my lap as I leaned on a trash bin. And at least it was warm here in the tunnels. On our third day running, I found a public terminal that still operated. There were still some remnants of civilization, even in Undercity, and I tried to search the community pages for jobs or at least something that would keep us hidden, away from Layla, away from the resistance, away from corporate, as I was searching, another man seemed to be standing, watching me. I met his eyes. Yes? He cleared his throat. Uh, yeah, sorry, but can you read? I nodded. And write? I nodded again. Like, all the words and stuff? Yes. I drew the words out hesitantly. I don't know all the words, but I can look them up. Why? He handed me a thin rectangle of paper. What does this say? St. Margaret's House of Healing, I read. Bethany Johnson, medical doctor. Wow, said, obviously impressed. And you can write, too. I nodded. I carried Shadow on my back most of the time, and had recently found he had recently found a broken paperback in the trash. I'd been trying to teach him to read to occupy himself while I found a job. I traced out the words in the paperback for the man on the ground and read it to him. He said, Could I pay you to write a letter for me? I blinked at him a little confused. Well, sure, but why don't you just write it yourself? He shot me a look of impatience. No one here can read, lady. I'll get you a pen, some paper. Would you do it? I named a figure. He nodded and pointed to the card. I'll meet you there. The ladies at the house are real nice. Shadow's arms tightened around my neck. He wanted to go. 
I craned my neck back to look at him in surprise. It was the first sign of anything he'd shown since the first day. You want to go there? I asked him. He nodded. The other man looked surprised when the boy moved. Damn, didn't even see the little squirt there. Pretty one, though. Are you looking to rent him out? Boys aren't my thing, but I know a guy. He must have seen my expression. Ah, no offense, lady. Those BL clones are in real high demand, though. And it's a hard life down here. I patted Shadow consolingly as he shrunk back and clung tighter to me. No, this little guy isn't for sale or rent. I'll see you at the house in an hour or so. He nodded, and Shadow and I made our way to the new portion of the city. The House of Healing actually turned out to be a church, or whatever it was when a bunch of people did made-up rituals. I didn't know the word for it. There was a statue of a dead man pinned to the wall of the reception chamber, which seemed odd, and it seemed odd that there were a whole bunch of benches laid out on the stone floor, but everything felt warm and clean, though a little beat up, and we could see a courtyard with a number of rooms and corridors beyond the great windows. Shadow and I both stared in wonder at those windows, huge glazed things with pictures and colors that would have looked amazing if Undercity had had any real light. But the street lamps and storefronts shining did make tiny rainbows and shadows in the great glass, and it was quiet. Sort of. Quieter, anyway. I could feel Shadow relax a little and felt my own muscles untense as well. Pretty, aren't they? said a welcoming voice. Is this your first time in a Catholic church? I turned to see a tiny woman wearing soft, baggy black pants, a black tunic over long sleeves. She had on a white coat that reached down to her calves. She wore eye prosthetics. Her hair was done up in a little bulb on the top of her head, and a long necklace that was partially tucked into her belt with a miniature copy of the dead man on the wall at the end. Mid-forties, nearsighted, slight limp. No threat. Yes, ma'am. We're very sorry to intrude. I'm here to write a letter for one of your customers. He said it would be all right to use the space here. I saw her eyebrows go up. Oh, you can read and write. I nodded. Shadow's arms had gone slack, and he was really sleeping for the first time in days. I settled him a little more gently on one of the pews and pointed to him. The kid seems to like it here, and I need the work. Is it okay if we stay for a minute? There was a long pause. She seemed to be considering me, really looking at me like I didn't remember anyone else having done before. I suppose, yes, you can stay. Actually, if you need work, we could use your help. You're a hybrid, aren't you? Combat type? I nodded. What was your designation, then? TK0454675F, I said, almost not letting the words out. Something in me seemed to be holding on to them, as if they were precious. Maybe I should keep this a secret? But who would care about me? Corporate already threw me out. What could it hurt? She seems harmless enough. A TK model? How interesting. She came closer. May I touch you? I nodded. She put cool hands on my cheeks, unconsciously imitating Layla as she pulled my mask away to look at my ruined, scarred skin. I wondered what she saw. Whatever it was, it seems to have been important to her, and she exhaled and said, Oh my, before replacing the mask. I can offer you room, board, two changes of clothing, and a weekly stipend. It's not much, she paused looking at the boy. But you won't be allowed to continue with him. He'll need to go someplace safe. Safe? He's very safe with me. 
I'm sorry, you may not understand this, but we don't allow the abuse of children here. Oh, I'm not fucking him. Besides, clones under 16 are not suited for human comfort at all. I couldn't imagine breaking that law. I patted the arm wrapped around my neck protectively. He didn't stir. I thought I felt just a hint of drool on my shoulder. He was out. I rescued him. Whoever had him before did something to him that I don't understand. He can't talk. He was in a cage. He can't seem to sleep either, but here he likes it for some reason. He didn't even know how to feed himself. Maybe you could let him stay here for a while until he gets comfortable being a person again. She hesitated. For now, it's fine. Follow me if you'd like. Uh, the boy can sleep here. I'll, um, I'll show you to your room while you wait for your client. My name's Beth. I manage the medical side of our operations. We're a licensed hospital, if you were concerned. I shrugged. Statute 225.27 of the Civil Code requires all religious facilities to be licensed and qualified medical centers regardless of size as a condition of your tax-exempt status. I figured. TK unit indeed, she mumbled. Extraordinary. I picked up Shadow as she directed us out of the reception room, not wanting to leave him alone, and made our way down a small, plain, white corridor. Ma'am, uh, what will I be doing here? At this, she smiled. Whatever, you need you, whatever we need you for, TK. I need an assistant. And you may be just about perfect. Let's get you set up in your room so you can finish that writing that letter so I can see how good at this you're about to be. I felt something rising in my chest, and it took a minute to recognize it as hope. I almost stepped over the body near the cathedral on my way home. Shadow, in his usual spot, riding on my shoulders, tugged my face downward to see the bundled form, still twitching. It had obviously tried to wrap itself in a tarp, but, just as obvious, the hands no longer worked right. Layers of dirty clothes peeked out from, from the plastic as he muttered and thrashed lightly in his dreams. Disease. Familiar disease. Another one. I felt a quick shiver of unease as I checked for the red coroner clones that always seem to appear near, the, near these kinds of people now. Like scavengers, they always seem to be there to drag off the dead, ricky-tick. There was something unnatural about it. No sign of one of the red ones, though. Maybe there's enough time. I lifted Shadow to the ground. We'd only been here a couple weeks, but he was already looking healthier, stronger. He still didn't speak, but now his tiny body had a couple muscles, and his eyes were quick to follow things. He regularly assisted me in the doctor now and was even taking classes with one of the other medics. He seemed to have a knack for math, where there had been just despair and apathy before. Made me feel good. I replaced him with a broken human on my back and had to strain to lift him. I imagined whatever was remaining of my prosthetics groaning with the weight. In the distance, I could hear the church bells ringing above the sound of the city, the hopeful sound in Congress against the smoke and constant darkness, noon mass and the end of first shift. With the man so close to me, I could smell sewage, ruin, despair, and the sickly sweet scent of something stuck to him. No one knew what this disease was yet, but more and more people like this man were showing up. Shadow and I made our way to the bells. The man didn't seem aware of being carried or being placed in the medical ward. He didn't seem to feel me and Shadow strip him, clean him, and put him in the bed. His fingers grasped for things that weren't there. 
He muttered in a language no one knew. He looked starved, with his bones sticking out unnaturally, deep scarring where healthy arteries and veins should be, and his skin seemed to be an odd shade of blue. Shadow filled out the entry information for me on his small tablet as I made a preliminary inspection and waited for Dr. Beth. But there were dozens like this man, mostly dying. Most of the time, all we could do was help them die easier. I knelt next to the bunk beds and waited, feeling the cold stone of the ancient building pressing into my knees. TK, Beth slid in next to me. You found another one? I nodded. Same symptoms as the others. Tremors, hallucinations, dysphagia. We started a nutrient drip for him in an IV, but he hasn't regained consciousness. She gave a long sigh. No, he wouldn't, would he? Did you find any identifying markers? Anyone we can call? I shook my head. Of course not, she said bitterly. Did Dr. Martin on mid have anything we could use? Any information? No, I said. He said they're only seeing humans suffering from overdoses, and he's not allowed to provide any care to them. He said they're only seeing clones suffering from the overdoses, and he's not allowed to provide any care to them. Just recycle the body. The coroner clones were there, all the time, just waiting. She made a small, inarticulate sound of frustration as she looked at the hastily made-up beds and listened to the eerie science of the building. We're not a hospital now. We're a morgue. There were a few more patients to look at. I followed the doctor as her diligent assistant. Reasonably quickly, I'd become a decent nurse. Evidently, the years of combat training had provided the perfect skill set to perform basic medical practices, restrain and move incapacitated patients, and deal with the soul-crushing bureaucracy that was medicine. I spent more time helping to track down medical records and complete case histories than actually providing care, but I didn't mind. The cathedral offices were right next to the library. Beth's office was filled with text and reference materials I could read whenever I wanted. She'd taught me to really write, not just type, and the written word lit up something inside me I didn't realize had existed, something I needed, something deeper and more intense than anything I'd ever felt. I wanted to know things. Shadow seemed to feel the same way. Stacks of books now crowded our tidy rooms, and notebooks full of thoughts seemed to spill out of every open space we had available. And every day, after our shift in the wards, the evenings were spent here, in the offices, surrounding by books and the soft light framed by leaded glass windows. Beth and the others were still and quiet when they worked. You could hear the bells chime for evening prayers and the murmur of worshippers from the great room just beyond the walls. But in this room, there was only soft breathing tinny strokes of keyboards, and the soft scratching of real writing. How it was legal to keep all this paper, I thought to myself, again struck by the warm colors and the feeling of presence that real books had, even as I made my notes in the flowing cursive script that was more like drawing than writing. I have a present for you, TK, Beth said suddenly. I'm sorry I forgot about it. It's in honor of your first... Successful... It's in honor of your first... In honor of your visit here, she handed me a package wrapped in brown paper and another giant bulky one tied with cargo string that she pulled out from underneath her desk. I believe Father Philip has a similar gift for Shadow. I glanced up at her, slightly shocked. I'm very glad you're here, she continued, smiling at me. I smiled back. It was still an unfamiliar and disconcerting facial expression for me, but it didn't stop me from undoing the wrapping. The first package held two books, the first a basic medical text on pharmacological and anatomical principles, the second a leather cover wrapping a delicate journal made up of excruciatingly thin paper. 
Beth reached over to take the journal from me. Here, see this paper? <clears throat> you can make it yourself. She made as if to rip it, and I flung up a hand. No, only to see the smile on her face as the paper refused. You can also write on it with anything. Pencil, pen, your fingernail. Anything with a point will create a mark that lasts. She handed it back to me, and I ran my fingers over it protectively. The leather cover felt good against my skin, real and solid. Isn't print like this illegal? I asked, already knowing the answer and that she was going to lie to me. She shook her head. Thank you, I whispered. I'll treasure it. My first present. Open the other one, she said, nudging the other bundle towards me. It was a field medic pack, a real one, peacekeeper grade. One side was all field dressings, self-healing, self-adjusting bandages, tourniquet, expandable splints, emergency blankets, painkillers, overdose response drugs, sutures, anything I could possibly need. The other side left room for a personal kit, all folded into a backpack. I couldn't say anything. She rotated it slightly so I could see that someone had stitched my name into the fabric at the top, PK0454675, in bold black letters. For your walkabouts, as a proper medic, You've been helping us so much with the house calls and emergency response work in the city, we thought you should have your own kit. Well done, PK. Well done. I gently placed the books into the little cubby that seemed made for the purpose in the pack, secured them carefully, and kept my face down. There seemed to be some sort of terrible pressure in my chest. Shadow had his own room. It was right next to mine. Somehow I wasn't surprised, though, when his little body was already curled up in my bed, with a single soft nightlight lit. His arms were wrapped around his very own computer, like a teddy bear, and there was a brand new book and robotics toolkit placed protectively next to the bedside. I chuckled as I put my new treasures next to them and tucked myself in around the little boy. Feels almost like my birthday, I thought, smiling. Shadow had been growing. He couldn't ride on my shoulders anymore when we went out into the city. My pack took up most space anyway, and he was too big. He took it fairly philosophically, just shrugging his sh sl slim shoulders and burying himself in whatever he was currently building or reading. He would occasionally find something, tug on my arm, and point to it to know what it was, and he'd record the answers on his little tablet in whatever project he was working on with his new computer. All sorts of wires and electronic equipment seemed to have found their way into his room at one point. It reminded me of the peacekeeper med bays. He still got tired easily, and his legs weren't always strong enough to fight his way through the sea of humanity, so I found him a telescoping police baton he could use as a walking stick when needed. He had his own little messenger bag now with his toys and tools. I could tell he felt like a grown-up while wearing it. When I checked my bag before a mission, he checked his, and it made me smile. I wonder if this is how R felt when he was training me. The city seemed darker than usual today, more chaotic. I made sure to always wear an air purifier mask and made sure Shadow wore his as well, even when we visited patients, and not just because the air was toxic in some places, or smelly in others. Even here, clones were rarely welcome. Since we weren't citizens, anyone could claim us, or kill us. There were no ramifications. I carried a machete now and made Shadow hold onto my belt when we moved on the trains and through the alleys. Occasionally, we saw the distinctive feed-me-a-dead-cat drawn on walls and transport. I hid. I was afraid of them, of Nine, of Layla, of the Resistance. They need to use me, and it hurt something in my chest. Shadow broke into my thoughts. 
He frowned at me and made a gesture that said, I'm not a baby and don't need to hold on to you. There are too many people out there, I told him. I don't want you to get snatched. He scowled harder. Look, it's good that you do this with me, and I'm glad to have help with the access codes and the system overrides, and you need to learn how to move in the city and how to take care of yourself. You're not a baby. I just want to keep you as close as possible, okay? Do it for me as a favor. He narrowed his eyes and crossed his arms over his chest, but he nodded. Fine, he seemed to say. If it's for you, I'll do it. But I don't want to be fussed over. Good boy. Oh, he hated that. I could feel him glaring at me for blocks, and it amused me. I wonder how old he is. We should figure it out. He's small for his age, but... Shadow tugged on my arm to show me his tablet. He'd mapped out all of our house calls for today, and he'd somehow hacked into the emergency call system and created a notification for local emergency service requests that were ignored or routed to local services. Most of those we couldn't do much about, but occasionally there would be a transport accident or a larger event we could help with without blowing our cover. Today the boards were clean. There was just a note on the bot that a corporate peacekeeper had been dispatched to our section for patrol. I nodded, sighing a little. We'll have to be very careful today. Stay out of the streets as much as possible. He nodded and tucked the tablet back into his bag, prepared, or as prepared as we can be. Why do I always feel like someone is watching us? Chapter 2. Eli. Eli tapped his tablet to bring up the train consoles, trying to brock out the din of the warehouse. A magnetized car mover dropped something at one at the other end of the complex, and the boom rippled through the rest of the underground facility, making them start a little and mess up the cargo approval. Damn it. The erratic swiping had put him on the wrong screen, and he had to cancel the work order and start over. Oh my god, so much bullshit. But I like being employed, so... He started over with a sigh. The computer spat errors at him for the mistake, and he had a deeply satisfying fantasy of just throwing it across the room. Uh, pardon me, Conductor Reaver, said a shy clone next to him. Eli jumped. Jesus, don't scare me like that. The little clerk bobbed her head. A GA model, he noticed. A new one model, it looks like. As metallic interface nodes and visual interfaces played up and down the girl's forearm, I must be behind schedule. Eli suppressed a shiver with her so close. God, clones make me nervous. So unnatural. What is it with planet-side people and their clone servants? Just weird. I'm so sorry, Conductor. I did not mean to alarm you. You are, however, three seconds behind schedule. I've completed the rest of the train checks for you. You are authorized to complete your brake check and stand by for launch. Eli scowled at her, vaguely annoyed that his corporate overlords didn't have faith in his professional judgment, and had sent a clone. I like to do my checks the old-fashioned way, thank you. I used to pilot spaceships, you know. Trains are no biggie. The girl glanced at her forearm. You are now six seconds behind schedule. I'm authorized to take you directly to the head end, so you may stand by for launch in eight seconds. I would prefer seven seconds. Six. Fine, fine, fine. Eli rolled his eyes and gave up. God save me from corporate bullshit. He grabbed the girl's shoulder. Let's go. There was a dizzy sensation, a feeling of falling as the girl activated her short-distance teleportation beacon. The disconcerting sensation of atoms being pulled apart molecule by molecule, destroyed and remade simultaneously at the head end of the 20-kilometer train, made him cranky. As the form stabilized, Eli dropped the clone quickly and tried to be at least a little bit subtle about wiping his hand on his uniform. So unnatural. There. Fine. We're back on schedule. You can go now, miss. 
Since the bosses are in such a hurry, why don't you check me out and get me cleared for lunch? The girl nodded, her eyes going blank blue as she brought up her internal interface to complete the checklist and request launch. A flare of red-colored light against her cornea indicated that he was on the launch pattern. Eli looked away, uncomfortable. Thank goodness I'm just a boring old human, plain, unaugmented. Just a nice pilot without any of that trash in my guts. He unlocked the nearby locker in the engine compartment, pulled out a bag, and pulled himself up along the razor-thin handrail around the curved nose of the engine, depressing a hidden panel with one hand, throwing the bags into the compartment with the other. He hung half in and half out of the compartment itself, waiting for the little GA to get in the clearance. Finally, Conductor Weaver, you are cleared to depart in T minus ten seconds. Her eyes cleared back to their organic warm brown, and she smiled at them at him. Please have a safe trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Eli coughed a little and felt a tiny twinge of guilt for the unnecessary clone hatred. You're not so bad, right? Eh, fuck it. Who cares? With a mental shrug, he glanced inside the engine console, seeing the confirmation code lit up on the control screen along with the launch time. All safety checks were green, and the manifest for the first station was already scrolling along the interface. See you in a few weeks, Gia. They do nice work anyway. The girl seemed confused, cocking her head to the side as he started to slam the door into in position. My designation is not... But Eli closed the door on her and settled into the pilot seat a little ruefully. That guilt feeling intensified, but honestly, they're not even real people. He pulled the crosswise belts over his body, released a switch cover, and waited, staring at the computer screen. T-minus six seconds. Five. Please confirm launch. Underneath him, Eli felt huge generators kick on, and millions of volts start flooding through the train in a rumble that echoed around his solar plexus. There was a slight buckle as the train lifted itself onto the track, and the viewing screen activated in front of him, spanning where windows would have been if glass wouldn't have melted and exploded under the kinds of pressures he was about to experience. The gigantic circular accelerator flashed blue and green on the camera interface, waiting for him, about a half mile ahead of where the underground cavern transitioned to the long, empty desert of the terraform planet, as he flipped the manual con confirmation switch and leaned back. Confirmation accepted. Please have a safe journey, Conductor Weaver. Yeah, yeah, he thought bitterly. Safety first, right, corporate? The accelerator flashed red, and he could feel terrific, intense pressure building against his eyes, ears, and an almost unbearable tension that made him clench his jaws and press hard into the seat, waiting for the slingshot. A feather-thin stream of rippling electromagnetism spun from the train to the accelerator, and then suddenly they were away. 40,000 tons of freight and passenger cars shot from zero to 500 knots in three seconds. The screen shorted black for a moment, and when they came back, there was nothing but raw desert screaming past him at speeds that defied watching. And this was his favorite part. It was the closest thing to being back on a spacecraft. It was something so free about it, as if he was running from everything and finally able to breathe. He knew from station master footage that the high-speed maglev train would look like a silver river against the harshness of broken canyons, half-finished highways, and monotonous brown a cool thread of mercury in a sea of heat and destruction. He let out a small sigh of satisfaction and relief. You know, you'd think I'd get better with launches after all these years. He had a moment of homesickness for Cygnus Station and the clean emptiness of space. So much nicer to fly without gravity. Damn inconvenient. He touched the communicator on the console. Rigel Station Master 0075, this is C-A-R-5. He glanced up at the engine compartment to finish the full number. 
0-4, reporting successful launch. Milepost 001 confirmed. Roger that, CAR 504, we've got you on the tracker and you're showing clear track until City of the Sun. Stand by for real-time track condition updates. Standing by. He closed the manifest scrolling on the computer interface and brought up the map and speed tracker as Edsley, the station master, read him the corridor updates, confirming that he saw all of Edsley's updates on the console and that all operating parameters were green. All updates confirmed, he reported. Speed normal, signal strength normal, magnetic pressure wave green, satellite link low strong, departure at T minus zero, no delays. We are good to go, Station Master. Confirmed, Conductor Weaver. Have a good trip. Call if you need anything. Thanks, Etsley. CAR 504, over and out. The interior of the engine compartment was small, just under two meters wide and long. There was a tiny fold-out sleeper for him, a luggage compartment that could fit a small overnight bag, a wash station that could rotate into the wall as part of the electrical panel for passenger car monitoring, control, and a tiny composting toilet tucked into the nose of the machine, right between the magnetic friction control panel and the dynamic brake generator housing, sectioned off from the rest of the compartment by a tiny folding door. A small weapons locker, biomimetically locked, perched on the other side of the pilot's chair. Eli pressed his thumb into the lock, feeling the prick of blood as it verified his identity and corporate clearance, and the small indicator light at the bottom turned blue. He snatched his hand back as soon as possible. Something about the intimate requirement made him uncomfortable. In almost ten years of guild service as a pilot, he'd never had to use a weapon, but each trip, corporate made sure it knew who he was and what he was doing with its equipment. It bothered him on some level. And to hear the old guys tell it, corporate is using your DNA for all kinds of shit, probably creating little soldiers or new butlers or something with my info. Gross. Trip startup checks complete, 10.38, he recorded into the computer. A metallic chime interrupted him. He dimmed the cabin lights, letting the interface take up the forward viewing screens in the blue-green glow of the manifest data and the camera reflections of the desert rocketing past. Initiate PTC control authorization weaver. Another small chime sounded, and the train physically shifted as the computer took over general functions. A new screen lit up next to the manifest, showing a simple green line on a black screen with numbers flickering above and below it as speed shifted over the grade, and the computer calculated braking distances and magnetic field strengths. Eli had made this particular run many, many times. City of Angels to City of the Sea and back again. It had been a primary route since he'd started with the pilot's guild at 16. Straight out of Cygnus and shiny with that nudie smell. God, I miss the station. All these planet people look sick. Sick and miserable. A proper station master would never let that happen in the void. Shame these planet jobs pay so well. Maybe I'll look up a new contract gig when I get to the sea. A red marker popped up on the grade map. He noted the speed and curvature of the track. Mark. Two, five, seven, one, ten degrees, mile post six. No issues. A small chime sounded and the marker turned green. The desert sped past. A little over an hour later, he pulled the train off automatic control and decelerated, activating the brakes and reversing the magnetic polarity of the primary generator gradually as they approached the city of the sun. He could feel the train wanting to accelerate as it descended into the great cavern that the city had carved out for itself. Hundreds of miles of rock had been hollowed out to make room for habitation, away from the crippling radiation of the desert sun. With the deceleration, he could clearly see homes and people moving through the walkways, bridges, and stone corridors tunneled deep into the depths of the earth. 
Concrete lining and thermoreflective webbing arched over the tract, shrouding the city in an almost perpetual twilight. The sun yard was busy, but it was always busy. Huge trains hauling water and earth moving equipment lumbered in the hundreds of tracks spider webbing from city center towards the colonies near the outskirts, each section of tracks separated by giant stone pillars and concrete walls. An aqueduct and utility corridor vaulted above the trains, spiking out into the surrounding city in all directions, everything lit in the odd muted red light of the hidden city. Eli cued the disembarkation automation as he delicately brought the train into the station, following the intricate dance of automated switches and track controls that snapped into place at the approach, bringing the tra train to a stop with a tiny jolt. A small red button started blinking. He pushed it, triggering the huge cranes lining the track for automatic switch and offset. There was a low growl and a blow as the heavy robotic machines pulled the transfer cars off the head end and placed them next to him in the outbound escape track. City of Sun Yardmaster, CAR 504 reporting arrived. Outbound switch complete to track three and requesting departure time in T minus five minutes over. CAR 504, this is Sun Yardmaster. You are approved for departure in T minus five minutes. Please complete disembarkation over. Understood, Sun Yardmaster. Requesting backup move and train set to prepare for departure. Ready to depart in four minutes, 30 seconds over. Backup movement approved. Please notify when train set and brake test is complete. Roger that, Sun Yardmaster. Please stand by. The well-rehearsed script flowed out of his mouth without even thinking, and he felt the grind of cranes reattaching the train with new cars and the slight shiver that meant the passenger compartments had closed. He gently released the brakes and reversed the engine polarity, slipped the engine back into the receiver coupling, and reactivated the electromagnetic current joining the segments. A small light blinked green after five seconds, and an image of the now whole train popped up, lit green with a single homogenized field as it stabilized. He hit the acknowledge button. Sun Yardmaster, train set brake test complete, ready to depart. Understood, CAR 504, you are cleared to depart in T minus 10 seconds. Please watch your track for green lights, over and out. Eli brought up the new manifest, absently noting that he was now carrying nuclear and biological waste cars and another passenger car, and hit the passenger welcome automation safety protocols and communications. Weight and build were all correct, paperwork was appropriately filed. He closed the manifest screen and slipped back into the pilot harness as the launch window signals started to flash yellow. He flipped up the engine feed and ramped up the pressure wave, letting it build and waiting for the launch light to turn. The first generator lit up green, then the second, then the third. The track signal turned green and he hit the launch button. Again, the pressure wave seemed to stick his back teeth into his spine as the train picked itself up and threw itself in back into the desert, flashing past the remainder of the cavern that spanned hundreds of kilometers in a few heart-pounding moments and emerging into the blinding light that had earned the city its name. The sun had long baked whatever civilization had been up, away from the cavern long out of existence. He checked the, departure sen the temperature sensors, 48 degrees C, barely midday. A couple of the older conductors said that back when they used steel tracks, high temperatures like that could kink the metal, making it expand so quickly it pulled itself to pieces. Those sun kinks were impossible to predict, so trains would just swing themselves apart when they hit one. He looked at the manifest again and said a silent word of gratitude to the long-ago engineers that transitioned them to magnetized panels instead of straight tracks, picturing the 20-kilometer-long train being thrown into messiness because he couldn't stop in time. He shivered again. Those old heads had it rough, he thought, settling back into routine and slipping out of the harness now that the launch was over. 
God, we're lucky. Spoiled. Especially since all that radiation can power the panels themselves. Again, you don't have to worry about heat kinks in a proper ship. In space. God, I've got to get off this rock for a while. I'm getting grouchy. He made another route note at the next milepost, as required by corporate policy, and settled in for a long and boring trek to the city of the sea. Nothing out here but mines and dirt, he thought, staring at the display and putting his feet comfortably up against the weapons locker. Not a damn thing to look at. Shame corporate doesn't let you read on these things. He put his hands behind his head and tried not to be bored with waiting for the next check-in station. God, I can't believe they pay me for this. Part 2. Eli stretched luxuriously after turning in his papers and signing the train in at the station master port. Freedom. Ten hours of my life gone for a nice 18,000 credit bump. Yes, thank you. He glanced at the guild interface on his forearm and saw the pleasant green notifier that he had just been paid. Ugh, thank you very much, corporate overlords. Don't mind if I just take this and run away for a while. The city of the sea always made him slightly depressed, and this time was no different. He looked around the dirty, decrepit plasteel and modular buildings, dilapidated walkways and broken throughways, and had another flash of homesickness for Cygnus. Whoever's running this joint does not know what they're doing. He shook his head a little and headed towards the guild hall. Hungry, tired, crabby. I'll go look for something space-side tomorrow. Rigel 4 is bumming me out. You'd think that the oldest terraformed world in this sector, somebody would have figured out how to not make it suck. If anything, this time it seemed worse. He slipped into the crowds of people headed to the walkways and light trains, seeing occasional bodies shoved hastily to the side. If they were alive or dead, he couldn't tell, but the red coroner clones surrounded a couple. They looked like reapers, and he swallowed, glancing away. Who lets their citizens live like this? Here on the lower levels, there wasn't anything but dirt and heat and poverty. Tangled masses of wires and ruined husks of buildings still in use leered out at him, and he hurried up the transporters toward the mid-levels as fast as the crush of people would allow. The guild hall was a large, unassuming building conveniently located near the port. Both the ground transportation pilots and the long-distance void pilots could easily move to the upper or lower levels from the nicely maintained pedestrian bridges arcing out from the public transport sections, and he stepped onto the well-lit open bridge with a sigh of relief. Away from the crush of people, away from Undercity, it wasn't nearly so bad. Other guild halls occupied most of this section, and professional men and women bustled with purpose in and out of the buildings, making him feel instantly comfortable and safe. Whew, God, I hate it here. I need to get some better work. Well, maybe Kunihiro is still around. He had a lead on a couple nice jobs last time. He ducked into the pilot hall and dutifully pressed his hands against the security plate, which obligingly opened the inner door for him, and he stepped through. Home. Or as close as someone like me will get. It felt good, and he took a deep, appreciative breath, letting the smell of old paper and beer wash through him. All the guild halls smelled the same. Didn't matter what the craft was, seemed like everyone had a strong urge for books and booze, and all the guild masters seemed intuitively to provide that ambiance. He waved to a couple acquaintances, holed up in chairs with star map projections glistening on the table interface in front of them, but only one of them noticed with a wave back. Eh, wasn't interested in talking anyway. Booze, on the other hand. He headed to the old-fashioned wooden bar decorated with ancient sea motifs that had probably long drifted out of anyone's head for what they actually meant, 
and sat on one of the bar stools. Kunihiro-san, Eli made his voice as loud and obnoxious as possible. He also used Kunihiro's full name and the honorific, mostly because he knew it annoyed the old guildmaster. Come here and talk to me, old man. I need libations. Kunihiro glanced back at Eli, an unusual brief smile lighting up his serious features before they again settled back into his usual deadpan elegance. He made a comment to his companion and unfolded towards the younger man. Eli Weaver, he said, approaching. Been a while. Where have you been? Oh, ground transport gigs for the railroad. They're awful. Eli grabbed his shirt melodramatically. Kunihiro-san, you have to save me. If I have to stay on this godforsaken rock one more day, I will go insane. Insane, man. Do you hear me? You were a void pilot. You know how this is. How people can stay in the same pot spot for any length of time like this is a mystery. It's terrible. It's unnatural. Kunihiro disentangled Eli's fingers from his shirt, patted his fist comfortingly, and reached for something. Alcohol. I don't even care what it is, thought Eli. Anything Kunihiro gave you was bound to be good. You are being dramatic as always, Eli, said the older man. Seriously, Pops, I hate this place. There has to be a void job up for somebody like me. Kunihiro sighed and started to prepare a glass of whatever magical mystery he was into that week. Eli, you know you don't have enough seniority to get void jobs yet. You're stuck here until someone bails or asks for an extra board pilot. Eli groaned and threw an arm over his eyes. Come on, Grandpa, I'm dying here. You gotta know something. You know people. You can work for something. Please. He made his eyes big, pleading, and threw a little pout onto his lips to whisper in his most pathetic voice. Please. Kunihiro's face split into a tiny smile, and he looked down at the drink before he handed it to Eli. You know I got a soft spot for you, Eli, but no, you cannot refuse me. Look at this face. Eli pointed to his still smooth, handsome features. You know I'm adorable. Look at it. Can you say no to this face? Can you tell this beautiful, young, helpless, innocent face that it has to stay in this hellhole for another cycle? The smile on Kunihiro's face got wider. Oh, maybe not. Let me see what I can find. Eli grabbed him and pulled him over the bar so he could plant a big kiss on Kunihiro's lips. You are the best, Pops. The best! Kunihiro pushed Eli away and laughed self-consciously, shoving the glass back into his hands. Stop it. Sexual assault my own bar. You're terrible. Sit there quietly and don't assault any of my other pilots. Is that understood? Eli grabbed his heart theatrically. But Kunihiro Dono, you know my heart belongs only to you. You know you are my sun, my moon, my everything. People had started to stare, and Eli was obviously enjoying the nice red color that was moving up the dignified older man's skin, apparent even through the blue-black radiation coloring tempering his natural complexion. Shut up, Kunihiro whisper hissed and clamped a hand over the young man's mouth. And that drink is not on the house. You owe me 300 credits for last month's board. Eli nodded, gently lifting Kunihiro's hand part of the way off his mouth. I got paid today. I'll transfer right now. Kunihiro narrowed his eyes at Eli, and the boy gifted him with his best. I am a diligent and hard-working man smile. Fine. He turned away towards one of the other pilots, waving him over. Check in with me in a couple days, if you don't take another job, and I'll see what I can find. I love you, Kunihiro Dono, Eli shouted after him, as insufferable as possible. You are the bestest, most wonderful guildmaster in the whole sector. Everyone. 
Eli looked around wildly and pointed to Kunihiro. This man farts rainbows and sunshine. He's so wonderful. Aw, shut up, Eli, shouted back one of the pilots from the other side of the room. Should have known you were back. I stepped in some shit coming in here. Knew it had to be some of yours. Eli gave a little mock bow at the chorus of jokes and comments and blew a kiss to Kunihiro, who steadfastly ignored him. It's going to be a good day. He threw his drink back with relish. Delicious, of course. I wonder if Luke is around. Maybe he's up for some fun. He was. Eli snuggled down into his pillow and savored the moment of contentment and utter relaxation. Oh, Luke, I missed you. God, you're fun. So glad I could oblige you. The words sounded more bitter and distracted than was normal, even for serious-minded Luke. Eli cracked an eyelid. What's wrong with you? Didn't you have a good time? Yes. Luke slipped out of the bed and sat on his edge, back to Eli. It's always a good time. Then what's the trouble? Eli scooted around until he was next to him and put his hands on him. I know it will make you feel better, he joked, grabbing a very intimate body part. Luke slapped his hands away. Stop it. What gives? You love my affectionate charm. Not tonight. Eli rolled his eyes and flopped back down onto the pillows. You are ruining my nice buzz, Lucas. That is not very nice of you. Luke sighed a little and looked back, smiling slightly. Eli, can you be serious for five minutes? Eli put his hands behind his head to show off his very nice musculature and said, Sure I can, if it's worth it. He gave Luke a sweet smile. Love or money, dear boy, it's what I'm all about. You're a beast. A sexy beast. Luke chuckled. Yes, sexy beast. Fine, fine, fine. I'll try and tone down my enormous sex appeal. I get the impression you want to... Eli waved his hand generally in the air. Talk or something. Such a waste of time, you understand, when all this, he gestured to himself, is before you. But whatever, you're obviously too distracted to be entertaining. Luke grabbed the pillow and threw it at him. When Eli pulled it off his face, Luke was stretched out alongside him, pressing against him very distractedly. They didn't talk. Later, Eli dozed comfortably braced on some part of Luke's chest. The room was dark, and things had gotten a little carried away, and he couldn't quite remember if they were on the floor or what. Oh, I hope my next-door neighbor is working nights, he thought, smiling to himself. Otherwise, Kunihiro is going to get another noise complaint. God, what a good day. I got a new partner, Luke said out of the warm darkness. Oh, yeah? Eli said. What's he like? Her. Mm, what's she like? She's a cyborg. Luke shifted and dragged Eli into a new position that seemed more comfortable. Mm, good call. Okay. Luke sighed. She's losing memories, though, like corporate is wiping her files or something, and she keeps disappearing for really long stretches of time. This last time she came back with all kinds of weird injuries and somebody had totally killed her hard drive, and now she's just gone. And no one will let me see her file, like somebody physically erased her. Gross, Eli said, automatically recoiling at the idea of having that much metal and programming rammed into a human head. He felt Luke's disapproval. Sorry, sorry, I'll keep my clone bias to myself. Okay, so corporate's fucking with her. Is that unusual? I mean, they do it to all of us. I'm sure somebody with a direct link to headquarters would get messed with more, right? Well, that's what I'm worried about. 
Luke didn't say anything more, and after a little while, Eli shrugged. Well, don't let it get you down. You know, your job is too stressful anyway, and the pay is shit. If it bothers you, why don't you just come with me on the next job? Reclass pilot. Not all of us can just run away from our problems, Eli, said Luke, with some actual bite that surprised the other man. No, Eli said slowly, trying to be gentle with whatever was obviously bothering his companion. But you can. Seriously, you're a human being. It's not like you're a clone or something. You don't have to do any of this. Hire out as private security for the Pilots Guild, or, like I said, just come with me. He felt a little snatch of irritation at the lack of void jobs. I mean, I'm not technically allowed to have crew on ground jobs, but if I got a void job, you could just come with. It's not a big deal. And it'd be hard for corporate to find you if we just hopped around, you know. Nobody pays attention to void pilots. He felt Luke sit up a little on the bed, adjusting Eli off to the side so he could look at him. Eli deliberately kept his eyes closed. If I open them, I might see how responsible and committed I'm acting, and it will make my head explode. What? he said instead. What? said Lucas. Oh, you heard me, Eli said, suddenly embarrassed. God, what was I thinking? Commitment. Kunihiro is trying to find me a void job. I'm headed off-world as soon as I can find a ship. I can't just leave, Eli. Why not? Because there's something going on. Luke flung off the sheets and Eli felt his weight leave the bed. Something deep, and I have to know what it is. I gotta find her, the cyborg. She's gotta access stuff I need, and I can't have someone else just pull her. I need her. Um, no you don't, Eli pointed out reasonably. You're a police sergeant. You're only supposed to know about small things. Knowing big things is a bad idea, and this seems like it's corporate big. Since when are you an expert on corporate? Eli shrugged before remembering Luke couldn't see him in the dark. I've seen my first rodeo, cowboy. Now chill out. Mind your own business so you can keep your precious job since you won't come explore the galaxy with me. Hey, why do we always come back to my place? Don't you have nice digs as a fed? No, Luke muttered. My place is a dump, and I don't want the guys to know. He broke off suddenly, and Eli felt his guts twist just a little in recognition. Oh, I see how it is. You don't want to be known as a fag. What's not like that, Eli? Oh, no, no, it's okay. I get it. Don't worry about it. Certainly don't have to protect my feelings. I'm used to it. Eli. There was a pause, but Luke didn't finish. Ugh. Oh, well, crazy. Inviting Luke to come with me. What's wrong with me? Temporary insanity. If I had my own ship and needed a crew. Jesus, Eli, you're losing it. Don't worry, Eli said. We're fine. We're just fuck buddies. It's all good. I'm sorry work isn't going well, but hey, that's not my problem. Why don't you come back to bed and let me do something we both care about? Eli swallowed down a little pain. But hey, if that's all he's want, if that's all he wants, I'm pretty good at it. It's enough. I don't need anything more. It's fine. <laughs>